This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. So a lot of times I, it feels sort of like I'm living in a strange sci-fi novel where all the women have died and for some reason I'm the only woman left on the planet. Welcome to this episode of Range, stories of the new American West. I'm Amy Westervelt. And I'm Julia Ritchie. That was software engineer Liz Bennett talking about what it's like to be a woman in technology in 2016. Yep. Happy Ada Lovelace Day, Julia. <laughs> yeah, you too? <laughs> Thanks. So do you know the whole story about Ada Lovelace? Well, you know that I don't, so I have a feeling you're about to tell us. <laughs> Ada Lovelace was the only legitimate child of the famous poet Lord Byron. But that is not her big claim to fame. In a really bold move for the day, Ada's mom brought in tutors to teach her math and science. Hey, that's pretty cool. It is pretty cool. This was like the early 1800s we're talking about. But her mom was kind of a legendary weirdo who also did things like make Ada sit still for long periods of time to build self-control. Mm, okay. Yeah. So anyway, when she was 17, Ada meets this mathematician, Charles Babbage, and he becomes a friend and mentor of hers. He goes on to create some of the world's first computers and Lovelace tinkers around with them. In 1843, she was asked to translate an article about Babbage's work. In her notes, Ada described how codes could be created for the machines to handle letters and symbols along with numbers. She came up with a few other ideas, too, and for all that work, Ada Lovelace is generally considered the world's first computer programmer. How cool. So the first coder was a woman, and yet somehow we're still talking about women in tech in 2016. Yeah, exactly. So I've written about this a fair amount, and I hear a lot of pretty expected things from women working in tech. They're ignored in meetings, they're passed over for promotions, they're underrepresented in the industry in general. But today I want to dig into the story of Liz Bennett, the software engineer we heard from up top. The one who said she feels like she's in a sci-fi dystopia where all the women have died. Yes, exactly. So she has a somewhat unusual take on the whole thing. She doesn't just work in any old part of tech either. She works for probably the most male-dominated sector and the one that's constantly in the news for being sexist. Gaming. Mm. Yeah. So I caught up with her at the annual Game Developers Conference in San Francisco because I nerd out like that. Nerd. Yeah. And we were definitely the minority there. It was the first time in my life that I've been at a conference where the women's room was empty and the men's room had a line down the hall. I've actually seen photos like that go viral on Twitter. Yeah. It's hilarious. So anyway, here's Liz talking about sort of just how she got to be in this world. My mom is a huge influence, um, huge influence on me. She's also a software engineer. So, and she raised me never to think that women couldn't be good at math, that women couldn't be good at science, that um, she raised my brother and I in exactly the same way. She got me, if I wanted an action figure, I got an action figure. Like, if I wanted a Barbie, I got a Barbie, whatever. Um, and she, uh, 
uh, really encouraged me. She saw early, like, early in my life that I just had an aptitude for times tables and, and just, you know, random math-related things. And so she like, encouraged that. She put me into... I, I, I did um, like a statewide contest in Colorado, which is where I'm from, and like came like second in the state for math. And I was like, wow, this is awesome. Um, funny thing is, I actually got really into music, though. I went to Oberlin College, and I was a music major. I wanted to be a professor musician, and I had totally given up on, like, any sort of technical or math-related thing. It just, like, didn't... I didn't think I really wanted to do that as a living. I didn't want to do the same thing as my parents. I didn't want to have a desk job. It was so boring. But then I realized, uh, you know, 2008 happened while I was in college, and I was like, I cannot graduate with a degree in bassoon performance. <laughs> like, what am I doing? So I, I, I took a computer science class. I didn't want to take a math class. I had taken a bunch of math in high school and stuff, and I was like, oh, I'll try something different um, see how it goes. And I took the computer science class and loved it. I, it was so fun. Um, and I had decided kind of late on in my college career that I needed to declare another major and I had taken one computer science class and I was like you know what? it was fun I'm a computer science major now I guess <laughs> so yeah going from bassoon major to computer programmer is a pretty smart move yeah Definitely. So according to Liz, Oberlin's computer science department was pretty gender balanced. She said about half the staff and a third of the students were women. So it didn't totally prepare her for what her reality would be like in the tech world. So a lot of times I, it feels sort of like I'm living in a strange sci-fi novel where all the women have died. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. And for some reason, I'm the only woman left on the planet um, because it's not just when I go to work. I'm the only woman in the entire engineering department. So, like, the only one I see day in, day out. When I go home, I live in a uh, building with three units. And I have two, like, I live with two guys. And the units above me are all guys. So I come home, and I'm literally the only woman in my entire building. Um, I go to stuff like this, it's like 90% men, like, it's just like, so that's like, it's kind of jarring, but um, I don't think about it that much anymore. It's just sort of like, it's become my reality. Shit, man, that's crazy. It is, but Liz says it kind of doesn't bother her anymore. She's adapted and is fine with it now. 
I've gone through a lot of changes since being in such a male-dominated environment. Like my style of communication has changed. The way I stand, the way I do everything, um, is a lot different than it was when I was in an environment that was a lot more gender balanced. So I notice things. A lot of women will start sentences with "I think," or like "I think this is true," or "I think if we do this, this is going to happen." Whereas a man would be like, if we do this, this is going to happen. Even if they both feel the same amount of confidence, the same amount of conviction. Um, and I think this is kind of, you know, what happens to a lot of women when they're in groups of men is they say something. Nobody really hears them say it or nobody acknowledges it. And then a guy 10 minutes later will say the same thing. And people will be like, oh, that's a good idea. And it's like, this is like a thing that like, you know, I hear a lot of women complaining about, um, or, you know, just a problem that we sort of have as a society. But I think if you're conscious about the way that you're communicating your idea, like, if we do this, this will happen, then people, in my experience, listen. They just listen. Like, I, I think it's not about the fact that I am a woman and I said it and people don't like things that women say it's like I phrased it in a way that to them sounded unconfident or like I didn't I wasn't sure of myself or like I was just sort of because when they say I think this they're like 40 percent like when a woman says I think this she could be anywhere between 40 percent and like 95 percent sure yeah um and they don't see it that way they just see it as like oh she's not that sure Okay, so like two things going on there for me. One, I do think there's some truth to what she's saying about there being like maybe more of an issue in how men perceive women's communication rather than just them being outright sexist or they don't want to hear what women have to say. But two, I'm not sure that the solution to that um, is that we have to change the way we talk. Right. So that's kind of how I feel, too. And it's how I feel about a lot of the stuff that's out there right now about this whole gender issue, including, as you know, the whole lean in thing. There are parts of it that I think are right on, but also parts that feel like victim blaming. I mean, changing up her communication style has worked for Liz, and that's great. But I'd like to see the whole issue framed as something that men also have to work on. Like, they can be taught to better understand female communication styles just as easily as women can learn to communicate in a more male way. Mm-hmm. Preach. So, Sophia Dominguez, a virtual reality entrepreneur, talks about that, too. She says it's important to get more women into tech, and in her case, particularly VR, but also that women who are in tech need more male allies there. Okay, so the other day I was I was meeting with one of my guy friends, and um, in walks this guy who I had met one other time, and he walks in, he's like, oh, hi, Sophia, like, and he goes to my to other friend, like, do you know that Sophia and I are going to make a VR dating app? And I was like, what are you talking about? And he was like, yeah, because your dating experience is from Francisco are so terrible. I was like, you don't know what you're talking about. And then I told my friend, like, hey, you should say something, because, like, that's not okay. And, yeah, like, he wouldn't have said that to a guy. So the guy went and said something. So, like, I think that more people or more men need to be equally as cognizant about it. Speaking of which, I remember you mentioning a crazy story about some men who showed up at that event. God, yes, it was almost unbelievable. So we're at this women in VR panel, right? All the panelists are women. Most of the people in the room are also women. But there's this handful of guys who describe themselves as allies and said that as men in tech, they also want to see more gender balance. And then a couple of them started interrupting the panelist throughout the event 
to share their experiences. No. Yeah. And in most cases, what they were saying was was basically arguing with what the panelists were saying. Like there was a question posed to the panel about whether they felt like they'd experienced any sort of gender bias. And this dude just shouts over one of the women that in his experience, it's really more about the school you went to and the degree you have than it is about gender. No shit, Sherlock, because you've already crossed the gender hurdle. Exactly. Adora Udoji, another VR person, was moderating that panel and she put a stop to it, but you could tell she was kind of amazed that it happened. I'm a woman of a certain age and I've had several different careers. So I was a lawyer and then I was in broadcast news for a long time and then I'm in technology. So I've been having these conversations about gender for a very long time. But one thing I've been struck by being in this tech universe is I'm not sure I've ever felt more invisible. And that brings up another point. The whole existence of these women in tech and women in VR panels is kind of problematic, too. Yes. You and I have talked about this before, the whole pink ghetto and separate but equal thing. Exactly. And in the case of VR, it might actually be even more important than in any other tech sector. And why is that? There are all these studies out there that have basically found that because it's really immersive and it uses more than one sense, that it really embeds itself in your brain way more so than any other type of media, it really just sticks with you. And that's why people are excited about it. It has a lot of potential to influence behavior, like it can get people eating healthier. Banks have used it to encourage people to save money for retirement. Um, It's been used to help people understand climate change, all kinds of stuff that's really good. But the power it has to do good means that it can also do a lot of negative things. What you're saying is if we carry kind of the same old gender stereotypes into VR, they're twice as problematic. Exactly. Crap. Yeah. And so far, porn and gaming are the top areas of investment in VR, neither of which are known for their super positive depictions of women. Has anyone studied this stuff? Yes and no. There's actually been studies done, but it's an area that definitely needs more research. It's also one that unfortunately is probably not going to get a ton of funding. Mm, Yeah. (laughs) But I did talk to this one woman, Jessie Fox at Ohio State. She's kind of the main person that's looked into this stuff. And her big issue with it is that whereas in media, like if you're watching a TV show or you're looking at a magazine, you kind of you can see these different stereotypes and that has an impact and it's not great. In VR, you're actually interacting with the stereotype. So it's really confirming your bias. Blah. (laughs) I know. I know. It's concerning. Ugh. So what are kind of the rules or regulations around this stuff right now? There are none. It's totally the Wild West. There's nothing. There's no separate rating system, although there has been some talk about that. There's really like very little discussion of it Hmm. even. There is one area that companies are actually taking seriously and, and taking really concrete steps to address, and that's harassment. You mean sexual harassment? That plus really any kind of aggressive harassy behavior. So multiplayer video games typically let people talk to each other and trolling in there is kind of legendarily terrible. But then there's also all these social VR apps that basically let you hang out with other people's avatars in a social setting. So the idea there that everyone always talks about is that like you could watch a movie with a friend who lives across the country. And that's pretty cool. Um, But I have a feeling that you're going to tell me there's a dark side there, too. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, sorry. I'm like the total VR buzzkill lady. (laughs) Yep. Um, So basically, imagine garden variety social media trolling, but the person can be up in your face and yelling at you or pushing you or doing any number of sexually explicit things. Virtually. Yeah. But it feels really real. I'm going to play you a clip right now from a talk this guy Patrick Harris gave earlier this year. He's a developer at a VR gaming company, and they wanted to run an experiment to see how harassment would really affect someone in VR. We jumped down a deep 
dark, unethical, and immoral pit with this one. I, I am sharing like deep shame here with you. Because what we did was we took, we did phase two of this experiment. We still have our VR prototype. We still have a terrible, mean-spirited human being. But we replaced Laura, test subject A, with test subject B, who uh, I did talk to about showing up in this presentation. She does wish to remain anonymous for reasons that will become clear very quickly. And the important thing to note about this, and this is where this gets dark and bad, is she didn't know anything about the prototype or the game and she didn't know why she was playing. So I brought a strange woman into a game so I could harass her without her knowing why or being prepared for it. I'm not happy to say that, but it happened. And this time we were vid capping it, and I'm not gonna tell you about the things I did, I'm just gonna show you the things that happened. But what are you doing with it exactly? Mm. Such big, strong shoulders you have. Oh, 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 it's, is it in your eye? Oh. Hang on a second. Is this baseball bat being used as a solid something? I'm not entirely sure what is going on. Yeah. Ew. It's really gross. And the video on screen was of this angry little robot dude basically jerking off on this woman. It was super gross. Please tell me something good came out of that super nasty experiment. <laughs> it did. It did. They're working on coding various measures that would make it easier for people to block harassers, report them, or get away from them online. And various other apps are looking at this too. So there's this one called AltSpace that got a ton of heat on Reddit recently for being basically not a safe space for women. This one woman talked about how when she went in there, some guy's avatar kept trying to kiss her. Gross. A whole new alternate universe to be sexually harassed in. Just fantastic. I know. It's really, it's really pretty awful. So they're working on some better security controls. And actually, that talk that Patrick gave sparked a lot of really good conversations, especially this point. What I really want to impress on everybody here is that online harassment is bad, and VR makes it way worse. Way, way, way worse. It is intense, it is visceral, it triggers your fight or flight response. It is not a good time. So this also points to the need for more women in the industry making the content and deciding how women are depicted. It sure does. But doesn't that contradict what Liz was talking about earlier? Sort of, but Liz is more focused on what it's like to be a woman working in a tech company today. So her take is basically that changing how you communicate is something that any woman can do now, today, for themselves if they find themselves in this situation and they want to make the workplace better. Your style of communication is not just something that you're born with. It's something that you can work on like any other skill. Apart from making more definitive statements, what else has she kind of learned about communicating with men as the only woman in the workplace? It sounds like she's basically figured out a way to call them on shit in a way that doesn't make them defensive. If somebody says something to me that I don't like or it kind of, you know, rubs me the wrong way, like I, instead of quietly seething and then posting angry posts on Twitter, it's like I talk to that person. I'm like, hey, I kind of, you know... I felt a little bad when you said that. Um, it came across as patronizing. Um, what do you, you know? What do you think? 
and they're usually like, oh, I didn't mean it that way, this is the way I meant it, and I'm like, oh, okay, that makes sense, I can see it that way, okay. And and then they know that they said something that they that you didn't like and, and, and you let them know, and then it, it, it resolves itself. We also talked about how the tech industry actually attracts a lot of people who are maybe not natural communicators. You don't say. Yeah. So that can definitely play into it. And she brought up a good point that all this attention is on sexism in the tech industry, but there are lots of other industries where sexism is still very obvious and very entrenched. I would add our own to that. <laughs> yeah, I forgot to ask how old Liz is. She's 25. Oh, bless her heart. I know. Maybe she just hasn't been crushed by the ugly hidden hand of institutional sexism yet. (laughs) But I still think her approach, you know, studying how these dudes operate and figuring out how to create a workplace that really works for her is pretty great. Teach me, sensei. Indeed. episode was produced by me, Amy Westervelt. And me, Julia Ritchie. Season two of Range is supported in part by a grant from the Nevada Humanities Council. We record at the Reynolds School of Journalism at the University of Nevada, Reno, and special thanks to Nico Columbon. All of our original music was created by the talented Mr. David Whited. If you like what you heard today, please consider subscribing to us on iTunes or Google Play, or you can find us on the Stitcher app. Our partner is High Country News, a magazine focused on Western issues. Check them out at HC and if you have an idea for a show or want to share how you'll topple the patriarchy, shoot us a note at howdy at rangepodcast.org. For more frequent updates on our show, find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. See you soon. Bye. Bye.